Welcome to Bible Quest, the New York City, New Jersey, Philly edition. And uh, with me, as usual, is Joe Works in Fairlawn, New Jersey. Good afternoon, Joe. I am in Exton, Pennsylvania. We got your audio working there, Joe? I do, finally, yes. Thank you. Good to begin. Bit of housekeeping before we get started today. Um, Joe, you and I are both going to be traveling next week, and so we will not be doing a live webcast next Wednesday afternoon. Uh, so tune in two weeks from today. We'll plan to be back with you. The other thing that I'd like to mention is we, we call this the New York City, New Jersey, Philly edition. Joe, you're there in, in northern New Jersey. I'm over here in the western suburbs of Philadelphia. We really do want to use this, uh, this means of talking about God's word to reach people in these geographical areas. So if you're watching this webcast and you're in Texas somewhere, or you're in Georgia or Nebraska or wherever, but you know of friends or family that are here in northern uh, New Jersey or New York City or uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, really anywhere in this general area, you might mention this webcast to them if you think they'd be interested in watching, and um, we might be able to have some positive influence in that way. So I'll just mention that you to do that. Of course, we want to invite you to send your comments and questions today. If you're watching by the Facebook page, just make your comment right there on the Facebook page. Noah Andrews will get that to us. He's our webcast engineer. We'll try to talk about your comments on the webcast today. We have a guest today, right, Joe? Uh, we do. Uh, it's a guest that we've had on before, and we're welcoming back for a different topic, right? Right. Yeah, Doy Moyer from uh, Birmingham, Alabama. He works with the Vestavia Hills Church in Birmingham, and uh, I see his name. And uh, Doy, if you'll turn on your video, we'll see you. There you are. Now, are you? Yeah, I think we'll be able to hear I'm, you too. I'm here. Yes. <laughs> All right. Good to have you with us. Very good. So our topic today is Exodus. Uh, the Exodus theme in the book of Matthew. This is kind of interesting. I think you'll find it interesting as we talk about it. And Doy, I guess where I'd like to begin is just first of all, if if I don't know a whole lot about the Bible, maybe I need a refresher, just the basic story in the book of Exodus that we see thematically played out in some ways in the book of Matthew. Can you help us? What are the elements of the story that we might be looking for? What's that basic story? Well, if we, of course, start with the idea that the children of Israel, who, who were becoming a nation, uh, had gone down into Egypt at the end of Genesis. Of course, there weren't that many of them at that time. But they were in uh, Egypt, and uh, with Joseph uh, as, as a ruler, they had, of course, had found some favor with the, the pharaoh of Egypt. Problem is, some time went by, and as we open, open up, uh, the book of Exodus, uh, we find another pharaoh, a, a king of Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and the children of Israel were becoming very large, and uh, that made him afraid, and so what he did was he, was he put them into slavery. So now you have the children of Israel who are slaves in Egypt, and they're there for a, a significant period of time while they are still getting bigger as a people. Uh, then, of course, we have uh, the birth of Moses and uh, the idea there that the Pharaoh was so uh, fearful of uh, what the children of Israel might do that he wanted to slaughter uh, the young boys, the infants, 
who were born. And Moses, of course, was uh, saved by being put in a basket, and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And uh, he grows up in Egypt, and then later, of course, he's going to be sent back to Egypt to bring the people out of the slavery circumstances and to bring them into a new covenant, give them a new law, and uh, bring them into the promised land eventually. That would be the, the basic idea. Okay, of course, then the name of the book of Exodus that talks about all of this, it means the way out, and so the idea is coming out of Egypt. Um, and so, okay, that's that's helpful. All right, so we're going to be going to the book of Matthew now, and, and what you're, the idea I think you're going to be trying to communicate is that as Matthew relates the story of the birth of Jesus and uh, those first few chapters, that he is um, making some connections to this Exodus idea. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I think if we just we just kind of reflect for a moment on uh, the way this happens, it's not necessarily uh, some kind of a strict uh, chronological sequence that Matthew goes through. What you find happening in the New Testament uh, often in the Gospels, and Matthew does this a good bit, uh, is that there is some kind of, of an allusion to something that you find in the Old uh, Testament. There is a, a statement, perhaps. Matthew's big on, on the statement uh, that it might be fulfilled. And so you, you have this idea of Jesus completing or fulfilling uh, what the Old Testament was, was pointing ahead to. Uh, and uh, so that, that fulfillment angle is really important here. And I, I guess it would be fair to say that when Matthew says, or even some of the other writers say that it might be fulfilled or it was what was written was fulfilled, that's not necessarily saying that you would go back in the Old Testament and find something that would look like a prediction of a future event. You would just see something being described in the Old Testament. Now Matthew would be saying that it, that Old Testament event had a fuller significance that's now realized. Yeah, and, and the word I like to use a lot is is the word connection. There's a connection that's made to something in the Old Testament that uh, you find happening in the New Testament, and the events might be similar. Uh, in some cases, you, you, I mean, you do have direct prophecy in the Old Testament, but that's not so much what we're talking about here as much as making the connections between an event or a concept in the Old Testament and something that's going on in the New Testament. And, and so let me just, uh, to give that example here, uh, in Matthew chapter 2, and uh, if, we, if we start, of course, with the birth of Jesus in, in chapter 1, of course, I, I find it interesting. You can go back to the very beginning, and this is the book of genealogies. This is the uh, book of beginnings almost. And, and uh, so you, you do have some allusion there even to Genesis Mm-hmm. But uh, about Matthew chapter one, verse one, right? Matthew one, one. Uh-huh. And then as Jesus is born, of course, and then you have this, uh, uh, the hubbub that's going on about the, this, the king of the Jews and, and all of that. Now you come to this, this King Herod, Herod the great. And he is so afraid of who Jesus might be and what this is all about. That what does he do? Well, he begins to have the babies, Slaughtered. So now you have something that sounds a whole lot like what you read in Exodus chapter 1. And so Jesus uh, is taken uh, as an infant by his parents uh, down to Egypt. And uh, then in verse uh, 
14, after, uh, after Herod the Great uh, dies, they're going to get up and, and return back into the land. And so the, the statement is made in verse 14 that Joseph got up, took the child and his mother while it was night, left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I have called my son. And, and that statement out of Egypt, I have called my son is what's really intriguing here uh, because we have to ask, well, now, why is he quoting that? Uh-huh. What's, what's the connection being made? And, and that's, that to me is what's the, kind of the, the beginning point of, of seeing a bunch of these connections with the Exodus. So this particular passage is quoted from Hosea, the 11th chapter, and verse 1. And there, if I recall, it's talking about the nation of Israel uh, coming out of Egypt. Right. And, and I think that one of the things that, that we should do when we see this, uh, the connections that are made, some people use the word uh, echoes uh, from one to the, you know, you have an echo of scripture in the New Testament that kind of echoes back from the old uh, foreshadowings, uh, types, antitypes. There's a number of terms that, that are used here. But uh, I, I think what we have here is something that would take us back, not just to that one verse, but to a bigger context. And I think that's important for understanding why the New Testament quotes the old the way that it does sometimes. Because there are some times that, like this, and and this particular verse, Matthew 2.15, has been the subject of a great deal of of topic and study and and the conundrum for people. Why would Matthew quote this? In fact, he's been accused of taking it out of context and, and all of that. But, but what I see here really is a brilliant use of this uh, by Matthew. And, and we have, in order to get this, I think we have to step back and see the bigger picture of the context in which this is taken from. Rather than just look at one verse, you see a verse in the middle of a context that helps us understand the greater purpose. So is the greater context that you're talking about, is it this idea that throughout this section of Matthew, he is uh, harking back to several connections with the Exodus story? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it's just one thing. Um, but uh, let, me, let me go back for just a moment, and let's, let's think about the book of Hosea. Okay. All right. Um, Hosea is a highly emotional book, of course, for a number of reasons. Uh, This is a period in which the children of Israel uh, have entered into this uh, sinful circumstances, you know, the idolatry that they were involved in, uh, the spiritual harlotry uh, that they were involved in. And Hosea is called to, you know, take a wife out out of harlotry here. Yeah. In chapter one. And, and just, uh, just to set the stage for everybody, Hosea is a prophet who's living some, what, 700 years after right. the exodus out of Egypt. Yeah. And yeah. the nation has settled in the land of Canaan and they've gotten their kings and so on. But by this time, they've become fairly, um, well, idolatrous. Yeah, it'd be 700 years after Egypt and, you know, another 700 years before Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so he's right there in the middle and he's, he's taking this wife who is obviously unfaithful to him. And you have, you know, there are children that are born 
uh, to her, uh, her name's Gomer, uh, children born to her that the names of the children make it clear that it, at least by the time you get to the end, they are not Hosea's children. You know, Loami, not my people. Was mm-hmm. the name of the and so this becomes something that, uh, you know, Hosea, of course, is, is torn up about. And um, it's, it's the unfaithfulness of God's people that sits in the background here, a broken uh, covenant uh, that lies in the background of the circumstances here. But, but that also uh, is the occasion that God is going to use to, to promise to have a great deal of compassion. And so while there's this unfaithfulness and a promise to bring judgment due to that unfaithfulness, there's also a sense of, of great compassion uh, that is here. And, and the concepts that I find significant in Hosea that, that kind of help set this context would be, first, the idea of compassion. God is going to show compassion on the people. Secondly is the idea of covenant. Uh, there is a covenant uh, context here. And the idea of faithfulness uh, and God's faithfulness to the promises. Uh, and all of this is kind of sitting uh, in the background, I think, of, of what's going on with Matthew's use of Hosea 11. So compassion, uh, the idea of a covenant, the idea of faithfulness, are, are those ideas that you see especially associated with the Exodus story? Well, you, you do because... Uh, and of course, the children of Israel didn't always see this, but but God was having compassion on them in a number of ways. Uh, you know, if you think about the Exodus story for just a minute, you have the story itself, which is which is amazing, but then you have the meaning of the story. You have the meaning that that lies behind it. So, for example, as a part of the Exodus, they were to prepare to eat the Passover meal, followed by the week of the the feast of unleavened bread. And, uh, you know, the Passover was a demonstration of God's compassion on the people uh, by giving them an opportunity so that the the firstborn uh, of the families could be redeemed and they wouldn't be destroyed in the plague that was about to to completely destroy Egypt there. Uh, So God is showing compassion on the people. And it is interesting there. Paul makes the, the comparison in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, when he says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. So there's a very direct connection. Or when John the Baptist in John 1.29 points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So you have connections in other places that are made back to the Exodus account, the Passover. And and the thing that that intrigues me is when you, you stop and think about, well, what do these feasts mean? What did they represent? And I would suggest, uh, out of a number of things we could say, uh, two ideas uh, that I think are very prominent in the life of Jesus. And one is the idea of freedom, release from captivity. And the second uh, is the idea of a new life, uh, coming into a new covenant relationship with God, so you have uh, you have freedom and release, and you have uh, a new life that comes out of this. So that's this is what happens. This is the effect of the Exodus as they come out of Egypt, come down the Mount Sinai, receive the the new covenant. They become officially the people of God, and they're in this covenant relationship. 
So uh, that's going to figure prominently, I believe, in the life of Jesus and what he represents. So just for our viewers, if you're just tuning in, Joy Moyer is with us. We're looking at Exodus themes in the book of uh, in the book of Matthew and really in connection with Jesus, I suppose, generally. A couple of things that just jump out at you that we've already talked about. Uh, you have in the book of Exodus a Pharaoh who is uh, the king, and he sees the Israelites as a threat. Therefore, he wants to have all the male children born amongst them killed. And we go back and read that in Exodus the... Uh, first chapter and verse 16, he said to the midwives with the Hebrew women, the Israelite women, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. Well, the connection in, in Matthew that Doy mentioned, of course, or alluded to, is that Herod uh, hears about this, this Christ being born, and he wants to know where he is because he sees that as a threat. And when uh, he is unsuccessful in getting the wise men who've come to see Jesus to come back and tell Herod where this baby is, he has a bunch of the babies in the, in, born within two-year period around Bethlehem killed, hoping to eliminate that threat. So you have that connection. Then you have the idea that God's people were called out of Egypt. And I guess you could say, Doy, really in a sense, the whole nation of Israel as the firstborn of God, foreshadows the Christ. And then the Christ is called out of Egypt, where uh, his family had taken him until the, the King Herod is dead. So, so we're seeing those connections, and now you're developing some more kind of uh, big-picture connections. Joe, you want to jump in here anytime with any of your questions, or Doy, take it on from there. Yeah, maybe, maybe this isn't uh, so significant, but looking at the Matthew 2.15, um, who do you see Jesus, um, I forget what word you used earlier. I thought it was a good one. I should have written it down. Yeah, I'm writing them down here. <laughs> this sort of uh, illusion or foreshadowing, whatever, connection. That's what you said, connection. Um, I like the simplicity of that. Yeah, it's, it's those words, Joe, that you're not real familiar with that don't stick in your mind. You just <laughs> it's more than six letters. I can't spell it. Uh, so is the connection then that Jesus is Israel or that he's Moses, or that he's like the firstborn redeemed, or, or am I thinking too deep on that? No, I, here's the interesting thing to me about connections like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be just a one-to-one connection. In some cases, it's, it's, it's both or all. Uh, it's, it's, because the idea is that it brings up something that makes people think about that whole series of events. It, again, that's why I said the connections that are there uh, come out of not just let's quote this one passage and that's it, but it comes out of a circumstance that lies in the background. Uh, so, you know, I mentioned the, uh, the ideas of compassion and covenant faithfulness. So think about it like this. You know, Jesus is God's demonstration of compassion on, on others. Uh, Jesus is the one who brings in the new covenant. Jesus is the perfect demonstration of true faithfulness. And and when you think about uh, the Exodus itself, the Exodus is the defining moment for for Israel, Uh, the the defining moment of the new people, as it were, of God. Again, freedom from slavery, entrance into a new covenant. And so I I believe Matthew is, is trying to get us to think about Jesus as the new Exodus. Um, 
you know, that, that what God's people, he is what God's people should have been. He, he's the perfect representation of Israel. Uh, so in that sense, yes, he, he represents Israel as a whole. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. In Hosea, my son, there is a reference to the people, not just one person. But, you know, like you said, uh, the children of Israel were God's firstborn, as it were. Exodus 4.22 is a passage that says, uh, uh, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. Um, So, yeah, I I think that makes sense that Israel represents Christ, but also represents us in the sense because, as you say, they were slaves in Egypt and then they are made free when they come through the waters uh, of the sea, when the sea is parted. Paul makes that connection in 1 Corinthians 10. Um, We are um, enslaved to sin, and we come through the water of baptism and are thus made free from our sin. Right, and when you think about it, I mean, Jesus offers us a new freedom, a freedom from slavery, freedom from the slavery of sin. Uh, Jesus offers us uh, the entrance into a new life, entrance into a new covenant. So the the things that were going on in the Exodus, we find... uh, to a, a greater sense of fulfillment and completion in Jesus Christ. So there are a number of uh, what I just think of as purposeful parallels uh, here. Well, that, uh, and again, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be chronologically linear. Uh, it's just kind of, you think, think big picture approach here, but there are a number of parallels that we've already, already been, been seeing uh, that we find here. So, Joy, your, your expression, purposeful parallels, um, we, we may want to go back and see some more of these particulars, but that kind of anticipates uh, a comment from a viewer here who says, with so many connections which are so clearly seen across centuries of time, it points directly to the inspiration of the writers with God as the ultimate author of all of this. Man can't make this up. I think what you're talking about is uh, uh, design, um, but what about this purposeful parallels? Is it purposeful in the mind of the person, the writer of the gospel of Matthew retrospectively, or is it also purposeful in the beginning in the telling of the story in the old Testament? If somebody argues it's purposeful only in the mind of Matthew, maybe they say, well, that, that doesn't point to inspiration. That's just somebody saying, Hey, I like that story. I'm going to tell my story to fit it if it's purposeful in the mind of the writer of the book of Exodus, that's another, that's, that's a horse of a different color because now we're talking about purpose with a view to something that isn't going to happen for another 1400 years. Well, here's the thing about that, of course, and this is true even with direct prophecies uh, that we find. I don't think we can say that the prophets uh, fully understood what they were pointing to. Um, in first Peter chapter one, you know, in verse, uh, verses 10 and following there talks about the fact that, uh, you know, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ, the glories of follow was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these, you know, in other words, there are things that they wanted to know. But, but they couldn't have fully understood back then what exactly it was all pointing to. I think there's a general sense of, yes, the Old Testament is amazing in the sense that 
uh, it's not just a handful of prophecies that, that point to Jesus. Uh, it's, it's the whole thing. It's, it, many have rightly uh, recognized that it's, you know, we can't just come up with a single list of passages that point to Jesus, that any list that, that does not include the entire Old Testament is too short mm-hmm. of a list. And, and so what we're looking for here, again, are the connections that demonstrate there is a cohesion between the old and the new. And there's a sense in which we don't fully understand the old unless we can read it through Christ. Uh, and, and the old is incomplete without Christ. But at the same time, if we just read the new without the old, we won't fully understand the new. So there is a completion, a connection uh, that is made uh, between these. And, and I, I agree with what was said there, that, that it was uh, uh, the, the inspiration of scriptures uh, uh, converge in a number of ways. And this, to me, is, is one of the more compelling ways that this happens, uh, is by seeing the multiple layers of connections that are made uh, between the old and the new. And uh, I'm afraid sometimes, you know, I, I like to use the term flatline. We, we, we often read the Bible in kind of a flatline way. Um, and we don't see the layers that you peel back and, and you don't see the connections that are made. And we just kind of read it in some flat, linear way and don't realize that it's an interwoven web, a tapestry, a beautiful uh, tapestry that, that finds uh, these connections throughout. And, and to, to me, it, it's, it's, that's what we're seeing here. Uh, I, I wouldn't even say that, that I've fully pe- peeled back all the layers at, at this point. And I'm not saying we don't want to overdo it. I'm not saying that, that we have to find one-to-one correspondences with everything there. I, again, I, I take a little bit more of a big picture approach. But, but again, if you, you kind of look at, at the, uh, the line Matthew was taking here, you have uh, the birth and the putting to death of the infants, the going down into Egypt, the coming out of Egypt. And then, you know, what do you find here? But, but this idea in chapter 3 of preparing this path and culminating in the baptism of Jesus at the end of Matthew 3. And so you have this idea of uh, passing through water, as it were, and, uh, and, and, and coming into this, this new circumstance. And what's, what's amazing to me is how at the end of Matthew 3, as Jesus is baptized, and, and like you mentioned, uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 makes the baptism connection to the crossing of the Red Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's going to be there. But it's immediately followed by this idea of, of going into the wilderness for a period of 40. 40. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, don't think, I don't think anybody can read that who's, who knows the Exodus account and, and is not going to think about that. Somehow. Unless somebody doesn't know the Exodus account, the Israelites came out of Egypt, they went through the sea, and then they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, as you're saying, Jesus is called out of Egypt, and then the next thing you know, we're reading about him being baptized, going through the sea, and then he's in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 days right. and nights. So, and it's a period of temptation, uh, which is what happened with the children of Israel. So again, there's some purposeful parallels uh, that are, that are going to be there. Maybe, we, maybe somebody said this at the beginning, and I just didn't hear the, all of that. But when you're talking about Exodus and Matthew, 
you're not necessarily then talking about the book of Exodus, but the Exodus event. The event. Talked about the book of Exodus with Moses. We've talked about the wilderness, mostly covered in numbers. These three uh, temptations that are, quote, the quotes are coming from Deuteronomy. Um, So it really is that big picture that you're talking about. Well, then that justifies me in going over to Deuteronomy 8, because when Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and he is tested, he quotes from Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter, uh, where Moses summarizes what has happened over the past 40 years. And he says in verse 2, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you in the wilderness. So God led them in the wilderness 40 years, testing you and let you be hungry. And you look at Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus was led of the Spirit, Spirit of God, into the wilderness uh, 40 days and nights. He was tested or tempted, and then it says he was hungry. And so you see those same five points here as Matthew tells the story, and it seems very clear a connection to that Exodus story, as you say, the Exodus, the event, not just the book of Exodus. Right, yeah, it's bigger than just than just the book. Um, and, and I even see, uh, as you come into chapter 5, the idea of the Sermon on the Mount paralleling this concept of the giving of the law. Um, uh, you know, and I, and I wonder, I can't, I can't prove this, but again, I wonder if Matthew's use of that, he went up on the mountain, you know, kind of parallels, you know, Moses went up on the mountain, received the covenant. Jesus, you know, not only is the, is the new Moses, uh, but he's also God who delivers the, the covenant to the people. Uh, because the Sermon on the Mount, of course, is filled with this terminology. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you kind of idea, the authority that, that lies behind that, because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what do we read? But uh, that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. And so here's this authoritative teaching that is handed down to the disciples uh, by the one who has passed through the sea and gone through the temptations and goes up on the mountain and delivers this, this message. Um, I just see a number of connections there. He, he's, and of course, the New Testament also shows that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18, uh, where Moses predicts the prophet that, that would arise from among the people which I believe initially represents all the prophets. Everybody needs to listen to the prophets, uh, but particularly uh, Jesus as he comes out and he speaks uh, for God in the most authoritative of ways. Would you say it's fair that as Matthew uh, tells the story of Jesus and he weaves in these themes from the Exodus story and Moses and all, that he not only uh, makes the connections, but he also shows that Jesus is he even surpasses Moses. And I'm thinking of the transfiguration here. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier, that uh, Matthew 17 and verse 5, you know, this idea of of Jesus, again, going up on the mountain, you've got uh, Moses and Elijah appearing with him, but but the statement that God makes there, hear him. This is my son, hear him. At the end, when he was baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, which combines a couple of Old Testament passages. But then uh, in Matthew 17, it's the, 
you know, hear him concept. He is the prophet. He is the one uh, that you need to be paying attention to. To our viewers, if you'd like to get a question in here um, about these connections, maybe connections generally between the Old Testament and the New Testament, or especially about the Exodus story, or if you have questions just as you're reading through Matthew, uh, really, we'd be happy to take any of your questions that are Bible-related, so you can send them to us by the comments section in the Facebook page or by the Q&A icon if you're watching by BibleQuest.tv. Uh, Joe, what you got? Where well, do you want to go next with that? Again, just that whole big picture, um, one of the things I've tried to emphasize in teaching is that not only do you see that big picture, but you see it as a pattern. It's just repeated throughout different uh, generations or time periods. But even dealing with Moses, when you know, toward the end of that 40 years, when uh, they are on the, the mountains, uh, Ebal and Gerizim, and you have the blessings and the cursings, I think also uh, that calls to my mind, a connection with the Beatitudes and uh, the the call to be humbly obedient, one of the themes in the book of Deuteronomy as well. We've got a couple of viewers expressing appreciation for what you're saying, but again, uh, and we appreciate your appreciating this, but if you have some comments or questions, uh, Doy would be glad to take them. Uh, Joe and I will be glad to tell Doy what the questions are so he can answer them. <laughs> you give me the questions and then give me the answers and I'll be okay. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Um, as you go through the book of Matthew, I, and it may, this may not be a fair question, but would you say Matthew more strongly makes some connections to the Exodus story than, say, Mark does? or maybe Luke does, and would there be anything um, of merit in saying that Matthew is a, a book that's especially written with a Jewish audience in mind? Well, it would, it would appear that, that that's the case, but, uh, I mean, yeah, Matthew, Matthew is big on that statement, you know, that it might be fulfilled. Uh, and, and so the, the fulfillment angle in Matthew is very, very strong. I think in, in Mark and Luke, uh, you have similar ideas, but they're in some cases maybe a little more subtle uh, than what Matthew does. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, there, uh, Richard Hayes in his book uh, uh, on echoes, uh, reading backwards, basically, and, and talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, makes that the point that, um, you know, you, you do, that all the gospel accounts are big, on these echoes, these illusions, uh, not, not always direct quotes, but maybe a term that's used, maybe something that's, that, um, you know, you just find as a, as something you can kind of hang on to go back and, and recognize that this is kind of like that. And as a result of that, it brings in a flood of ideas that are connected to it that help us see how the new Testament writers might be using some of these passages. So even if Matthew is especially focused on making connections that would be familiar for a Jewish audience, it's a value to all of us. Oh, certainly. Um, and, and I think it, it, for me over the years, it, it's, it's kind of changed the way that I've, that I've been able to read the scriptures. Um, because I, I think if I went back 30 years, I'd say, well, I was probably reading a little more flatline than I do now. Um, and, and, now, when I see something in, in, in the New Testament and I see, well, here's, 
here's a statement that's made that sounds a whole lot like this back here. Um, then, I, then I start to think, well, let, let me go back and read that account in the Old Testament again and see what the surrounding context of that is, because often you know, you're going to find the New Testament connections to, to that. Uh, so it, it's a way of showing kind of a cohesion between the old and the new that I believe is, is very strong. So I suspect we might have viewers watching this and they would, they would be a little fuzzy. Uh, what do you mean by reading it flatline? Maybe, maybe you want to try to tell us exactly what you mean by that. Well, flatline, I just, I just mean that, that there's just no, you see no depth to it. Um, you just kind of read it and, you know, everything has to be just kind of this across the board. Everything has to be, uh, super chronological or something like that. And, and we might tend to apply modern conventions back into the way that, that the writers back then wrote. And, and, and we just can't really afford to do that. One of the reasons why people think, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you know, that they have these contradictions between the accounts is because they tend to read it that way, uh, this flatline kind of a way, whereas they weren't necessarily trying to be chronological. Uh, that's why you're going to see some events flipped uh, between Matthew and Luke. They don't necessarily give them in the same order. That's not a contradiction. Uh, it, it was a, a purposeful way of telling those events so that it made connections to the audiences that they were, they were writing to. Well, you know, and we, we talk that way sometimes. We don't always relate events in the order they happen. We bring in facts that are pertinent to the point we're trying to make, um, whether they happened chronologically in the order that we are telling it or not. And we, we want those connections made. Um, sure. And, and again, that's what I mean by, by flatline is simply that, that, you know, we, we tend to, to think of it that way perhaps without recognizing that there are deeper purposes in the way that these events are told and the reason why they quote passages the way that they do. Um, and, and our task is to, is to try to unearth that a little bit and uh, try to, as we often say, you know, peel back the layers of the onion and see what's, what's under there. Joe so, I'm curious if, do you have another example of something in Exodus that where like you could just point to something beyond what we've already done and these are helpful, but where like having a reference to an old Testament event, then rereading it, in Matthew, we're like, oh, now I see that, where before, because of that misconception or that prejudice that it's only about that event chronolog uh, chronologically in time, is there, is there another example that you can give in Matthew beyond, like, say, these first five chapters or so? Well, I, you know, I mean, I was thinking primarily about these first five chapters, but uh, maybe as, as you... Uh, go further beyond chapter seven, you get into some of the miracles that Jesus performs, some of the powers that he demonstrates. And then you might be able to make some, some general connections back to the, to the wonders that God performed in the wilderness and uh, to try to get the people to believe and to repent and, and all of that. So I, I could see some connections there as well. Uh, I would agree. Of Jesus' miracles. I would include uh, Exodus 16 and, and when for God first gives them manna. And uh, in Exodus uh, 16, it's about verse 4 or 5. That story is introduced with the words, God is going to test them to see whether or not they will walk in his instructions. 
And then he gives them some very specific instructions and they didn't want to follow those instructions. And, and God asked the question, how long will you not walk in my instructions? And then we come to that story in Matthew, the fourth chapter, where Jesus is being tested after having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And he makes this statement quoted from Deuteronomy, which kind of summarizes the Exodus story and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Here he's hungry and the devil is saying, turn these stones into bread. And he's saying, I don't have a word from God. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but you live by just doing what God says, which was the lesson God was trying to teach the Israelites with the manna back there in Exodus 16. Yeah, the manna connection would be a great, a great one there. And, and John is, is very strong on demonstrating that one uh, in John 6, especially. Um, so, you know, again, uh, you know, you could talk about the idea of, of you know, coming up to the promised land and entering into the promised land and all of that. Interestingly enough, we do sing songs that reflect this very kind of thing. You know, we're marching toward Canaan's land. And we sing songs about about this very idea, um, but but sometimes when we go back and look at it, we may not see that that's exactly what these ideas are are conveying to us. So, I think for some time, or or maybe with some people, uh, I've been warned to to not try to read too much into connections, or not to make connections that aren't. Explicitly connected for us in a book like Hebrews or something. Um, I think Hebrews 8 may tell us that we do have a little bit more permission uh, to do that. There were other things that the Hebrew writer didn't get into that he certainly implies that he could have. But when I read like uh, Matthew 26, uh, 15, and uh, you know the price for Judah's betrayal was 30 pieces of silver. I could just say, oh, well, okay, so that was a good deal, uh, you know, from a carnal vantage point. Or I could ask, why say 30? You know, why not just say he betrayed him? Why, why give a monetary figure there? And then you go searching for 30 pieces of silver. And uh, is that a fair way of, of, like, trying to find these connections or would you suggest doing something differently? Well, I, I, I do think we have to be careful. I'm not, I'm not suggesting here that, you know, you, you find some specific thing under every little rock of every verse. Um, and, and you can't overdo that. And, and nor am I suggesting that we allegorize everything or anything. That's not the point of any of this. The point is to see connections that are, that are made in the scriptures and not to try to force those connections. Uh, typically speaking, the better acquainted you become with the Old Testament accounts, and, and then as you're reading the New Testament, the, the better we begin to see, oh, yeah, that, that, makes, that makes sense. And then here's the other thing that, that becomes exciting to me about this, is, is how once people kind of open their minds to, to thinking this way, I uh, find in Bible classes or, or whatever, people start making connections or seeing it, um, legitimately so, I think, um, they, they begin to see things I didn't see. And they say, hey, look at this. And you say, well, yeah, that, that makes sense too. And, and you can kind of see where it's going. So people begin to kind of open their minds to to more exciting way of, of understanding the scriptures. And I'm not, I'm not discounting 
the fact that we have to keep things in context and, and all of that. Of course we do. But we do need to understand that, that the New Testament writers did use the Old Testament in the way that we're talking about. And if we're not able to see that, we're going to miss a great deal of, of the New Testament message. We have a few comments from viewers. Joe Ham also commends the book that you mentioned, Reading Backwards, by, um, what did you say his name, Richard Hayes? And, Richard. and then Joe mentions, Joe Ham mentions that later in Matthew, the miraculous feedings, uh, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000, occurred in a remote place. And so you might think of God feeding the Israelites with manna out in the wilderness. Uh, Ed Crozier has a comment, and I'm not sure I entirely get the point, but he says in Exodus, God came down to deliver Israel from their bondage in Egypt and sends, verb form of apostle, apostle, of course, is one sent, sends Moses to be his emissary. Moses has signs that shows God is with him. Very quickly after Moses goes away up on up to up on to Mount Sinai, the people quickly turn away from God for those which are not really gods. Aaron goes along because he is a people pleaser. Uh, I'm not sure if he's connecting Moses with Jesus, who is our apostle, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And I'm, I'm probably not thinking quick enough. Do you spot well, all? It, it looks to me like the idea that you know God is the one who sent Jesus, uh, just like God sent Moses and. Uh, um, as Moses had signs that demonstrated God with him, Jesus had signs that demonstrated that God was with him. So, yeah, the, the, in that sense, the, the life and works of Moses that way would, would compare with what Jesus did. Well, we're out of time. Doy, appreciate your being with us today. I hope maybe we've spurred some of you on to thinking about the Old Testament as you read through the New Testament, thinking about the connections that are being made and that you can see purpose in all that has been written is included in Scripture for us and recognize that there is a God behind all of this. Thank you much, Joe and uh, Doy and you. Noah Andrews, our, web, our webcast engineer. Did, did we mention next week? Next week, we will not be here. Uh, we will uh, be back with you all two weeks from today. I'll remember, try to remember to put a note on Facebook next week that we won't be here. Thank you all. <laughs>